You're listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast. In this episode, I'm going to unpack the term degrowth with author, academic, and activist Anitra Nelson. Like any term and label, the meaning of degrowth is subject to interpretation of the beholder, just as much as post-growth is. The degrowth movement is spearheaded, by a large extent, by people who oppose to capitalism and many of its perceived trappings, such as conforming to rigid hierarchies. Hence, the more informal, collaborative nature of the movement means that defining the idea of degrowth is as fluid as the people and communities who champion this movement at any given time. Now, if my preamble sounds a bit wishy-washy, Anitra Nelson nails the nuance very well in her new co-written book, Exploring Degrowth, A Critical Guide. This book is a work of international collaboration with the Australian-based Anitra, who lives in Victorian Castle, Maine, co-writing with French-born and Budapest Vonswant Liji. Since interviewing Anitra, I've finished reading the 224-page book and have learnt so much about the movement as a result. Exploring degrowth is in part a historical snapshot of the origins and developments of this movement and in part a call to arms in what a brighter future could look like if, as a species, we are able to unshackle ourselves from the structures that lock us into a treadmill of growth, inequality and environmental destruction. An excerpt from the book reads, As the planet's ecosystems erode and politicians obsess over growth objectives, what we really need is degrowth, that is, to transform our ways of living, our economies, our politics and our cultures to live within Earth's limits. This is what our book is about, the degrowth movement. Now, there has been some debate around whether we should go for post-growth or degrowth, at least among those who debate such things. Admittedly, I always thought degrowth sounded a little negative versus post-growth that seemed more open and potentially positive. I guess that's why I chose the title of this podcast. Fortunately, in reading this book, Vonswant and Anitra were able to invite an alternative positive spin on degrowth. Again, I quote from the book, The word degrowth has been misled to the extent that its prefix and association with words such as decline and diminish seem to indicate that degrowth means austerity, puritanism and even poverty. In contrast, degrowth theorists and activists see it as establishing secure and safe lives, fulfilling everyone's needs in collaborative and collective ways as celebratory and convivial. All right, enough on semantics. More about Anitra Nelson. Anitra is a longtime activist, scholar, author with many passions and interests. In fact, it wasn't through post-growth but through shared passions of alternative living that I first met with Anitra. We first met around two years ago at a social gathering in Brunswick, Melbourne, where we started talking about co-housing and shared living. We agreed this seemed like a more sensible way of living compared to the dichotomy of suburban sprawl versus high-rise and congested capital cities being peddled to us by urban planners and developers. Anitra Nelson was launching a new book, Small is Necessary, Shared Living on a Shared Planet. So that week I turned up to the book launch and read the book from cover to cover within weeks, which is good for me because I'm a slow reader. In turn, Anitra showed up to a workshop I was running for Sustainable Living Festival on town planning solutions to the climate crisis. It is more recently that I've connected with Anitra from a direct post-growth angle, so I was really interested to bring Anitra's perspectives as to how shared communal living can play a fundamental role in the degrowth or post-growth movements, take your pick. Following the interview, I'll be returning for a few minutes to share my own experiences and perspectives around shared living, but without further ado, welcome all aboard to Degrowth with Anitra Nelson. Welcome back to PGAP, and I am very excited here to be sitting once again virtually with Anitra Nelson. 
Um, I met you about two years ago, and it's been a fantastic journey, um, both talking to you and reading your books. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Michael. And indeed, it is nice to reacquaint myself with you. I think a lot has happened over the last couple of years. Well, when we first met, we were actually able to meet up at other people's houses in Brunswick uh, in, in the good old days where you could actually meet up one-on-one. And it was uh, still at a time when the decade of consequence hadn't quite hit us yet. And we were more innocent. I would never thought I'd ever say that 2018 was innocent times, but here we are. So I'm going to start off by asking you not about what you do, because that's a very growthist mentality, asking people what their jobs are. But what do you love, Anitra? Well, I do love being semi-retired, which means that I mainly do no work for money and more or less what I want to do. And although I've managed throughout my life to mainly work part-time and therefore be able to be involved in politics because I felt that the world needed changing. Now at my age, I'm really able to devote a lot more time to doing research and writing and talking about all of the kinds of ideas and movements that are looking into post-capitalism, basically, which is really exciting. Now, you are an activist scholar affiliated with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. Um, Do you want to unpack that a little bit or um, you still work there part-time, is that correct? Sure, sure. Look, I worked at RMIT University in Melbourne for over 20 years and then I just moved to, we call that MISI, the acronym is MISI is how we pronounce it, at... um, University of Melbourne, primarily because there were some people that uh, I was involved with in terms of events and writing um, at Missy, people like Samuel Alexander, who's into simple living. And it just seemed to me that uh, with Boris Frankel and old Marxists there, there was a better climate Um, for me to couch my work and what I was doing. I had ended up in a centre for urban research at um, RMIT University. And one of the things that I felt quite uncomfortable about was that that uh, centre quite understandably focused on urbanisation. You know, like we're moving into an urban era and this is kind of like, breaking through like the sun rising and and I feel quite uncomfortable with not being highly critical of urbanisation and I, in fact, think that we should be decentralising and, and that's, a, that's a term that sort of covers a multiplicity of sins. You know, it needs unpacking as well. But, yeah, those are, those are the reasons that I moved and I moved in April And I haven't walked into the office yet because there's been a pandemic. And that does mean that we're able to rediscover the not always the joys, but I will say the joys of living at home, um, just as we've done for many (laughs) millennia. We've worked from home. It's been a very uh, unique phenomena in the last, dare I say, 100 years that you know, where you live and where you work at very discreet locations and furthermore that you travel to your discreet locations five days a week. That's a very um, unique and warped phenomena, isn't it? Certainly is. That's exactly right. And it, it does have to do with the system that we work within and that's capitalism. So we're brought together under a particular form of direction and there's actually a lot of suspicion that we can't work by ourselves and that we need that form of direction. And I suppose it also has to do with the fact that uh, capitalism has um, integrated quite 
high levels of technologies that have required workers to be working in the same location. Although one of the kinds of developments that we've seen over the last few decades with uh, the rise of digital technology is a breaking down of that so that people again are actually able to work in different locations. And this has been extremely important for the current period in which we are required uh, to work uh, with a degree of isolation from one another. Yes, um, although uh, when I read your 2018 book, Small is Necessary, Shared Living on a Shared Planet, uh, it gave a few ideas of how living doesn't have to be a solitary exercise. Indeed, you don't have to be (laughs) alone in a vast empty mansion, that um, other alternatives are available. And um, I I remember we had some great conversations about that um, two years ago, Um, my me, myself, I've been a lot into town planning, activism and the limits to growth and, uh, you know, just building Melbourne to 6 billion people by, you know, 2050 is <laughs> perhaps <laughs> not the best way to sort out our problems. So, yeah, do you want to describe a little bit about the Small is Necessary book? Yes, look, Small is Necessary uh, grew out of my life as much as it did uh, uh, out of my research. And pa- I suppose my research program, to some extent, had paralleled um, some developments in my life. Uh, when I was about 40, I moved into a communal household, which could be uh, probably best described as a commune in in the sense that we were all under one roof. But it was fairly straightforward. It was uh, about 15 people all all having their own rooms. Fairly intense in the sense that most of those people lived and worked all under the same roof. That experience, uh, which lasted a few years, was followed by an experience of living in a model which is more like referred to as co-housing nowadays, in as much as we were all living in uh, separate dwellings, over 20 dwellings, but over um, a large area of land in Box Ironbark Forest on the peri-urban fringe of Melbourne. The focus of that Round the Bend Conservation Cooperative was in fact to dispel wilderness ideas of conservation and try and show that people could live as conservationists within a forest. So I lived there for several years. That was really a very important aspect of my growth as a person It really enabled me to understand that we could manage ourselves in terms of self-governance in very strong ways. I suppose unless you've had an experience of that, there's an enormous sense of suspicion if you've just lived in ordinary houses, in ordinary neighbourhoods, and your main experience of politics is like local council or state government or whatever. And then you have experience of local groups, citizens groups, which are sort of quite uh, discreet. They're set on models of presidents and secretaries and all of that kind of thing. You don't get a sense that people could really get together and organise all of their livelihoods. The point is at Common Ground, we not only worked in the sense of providing services for the wider community, but we also were a little bit like a monastery in the sense of having our own community gardens where we developed the food that we would eat. And we also built our own housing And so all of this enabled me to see how we could actually have a society in which small neighbourhoods of people were capable of self-governing to that level. And really, if you self-govern to that level and we were integrated into networks of like-minded people, you can also see how you could have small 
neighborhoods like this that are self-governing with compatible and peaceful kind of relationships with communities that surrounded them. And it gave me a whole other experience and sense that we could actually move beyond the kind of very structured and bureaucratic uh, life that we live today. Yeah, interesting. And um, the few times I visited Common Ground, it's just felt like being home again. <laughs> I myself, um, admit, although it's a rental house, it's with, you know, anywhere between five to seven people who try to adopt a David Holmgren-esque model of retrofitting the suburbs, um, which has been a great experience. But I uh, did want to touch on that it does also require a little bit of a shift of psychology, in my opinion, because, um, you know, although there have been great times, there's also been periods where, I, I don't know, people have moved in and they not 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 at that point where they can um, compromise or um, be able to work their traumas with other people's traumas. And so it can be uh, a lot of times a lot of shrieking at each other, which uh, I guess uh, it doesn't really appear in some of the retrofitting books, that, that, that shift in mindset that's required. I was just wondering if you had any comments on that. I can directly relate that uh, to an experience that I'm having at the moment, which I think is really important. I joined a few years ago a group of women who are interested in developing co-housing in central Victoria. Initially, we met around once a month and, and this group was already formed before I joined it. One of my attractions to becoming more and more, more involved in that group was that it was organised in a very professional way with great understanding that we all had to develop the skills that you talk about of listening to where other people are at, really acknowledging that that's how they feel and where they're at, and integrating that with a strong statement about where we're at and what our expectations are and what we feel would be obligations to our group. We've kept meeting and it looks like we're probably going to establish a 30-dwelling co-housing or women's group in Dalesford and we are regularly having meetings with 25 women. So actually wow. developing those skills, what I think is, is, is that it's, incre it's incredibly important for people to realise that when they're in a joint household or they're co-housing, eco-village, whatever kind of shared arrangement, it really involves a couple of years of developing skills between one another that everyone's comfortable with. And you have to learn to be honest and not take too much offence but still be a strong person within the community. Look, these are incredibly sophisticated skills and they're skills that are quite counter living in the kind of mainstream society where we're used to actually looking up or looking down at people and organising them or directing them. And this is a very much peer-to-peer -peer relationships with people within joint households and eco-villages and co-housing. Very difficult to learn and I would say the absolute essence of those kinds of arrangements. I came across a term compassionate assertiveness, which I think um, is a really a skill that is required in these situations. And as you said, just not taking things personally or yourself too seriously. We're multifaceted beings and we're all capable of being having aspects which can be criticised or, or questioned. And uh, I, I might move on, if that's okay, to um, your next book that's coming out soon which you've co-written it's called exploring degrowth a critical guide 
Now, um, I've read half of it. I've read the first 100 pages. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm a slow reader. But um, now, Anitra, I, I really take it you don't really like growth much. <laughs> so uh, let, let me ask you, Anitra, what has infinite growth on a finite planet ever done to you and the environment? Well. Open-ended question there. Yes, indeed. I came to this kind of topic a very long time ago because I did my PhD thesis back in the 1990s on Karl Marx's concept of money and a kind of Marxist view looking at capitalism, growth is absolutely intrinsic to capitalism. And so this has kind of like been an object of my interest in a sense for a long time and I have always appreciated quality of life a lot more than chasing the dollar. So there are sort of personal inclinations towards spending time being creative. I like being with other people and just enjoying their company, all of that kind of thing. So I would say, and I would hazard a guess, that There are many people who actually don't really feel comfortable in growth economies and can completely understand why, from a social point of view, they don't really think that there is a necessity for everything to keep growing. But the more important fact is is that we actually do live on a finite planet that we have limited resources and indeed since the 1960s we know that we've been breaching those limits. So a lot of my life has been involved uh, with environmental movements that within which the constant shared property of these movements has been that they've been fighting against various aspects where these limits are being breached, whether that be gas, whether it be mining, whether it be things that involve us having scarcity in terms of water. We could just go on and on and on, but they're all about limits. So a lot of environmental sustainability studies uh, and research and writing that I've been involved with over the last couple of decades are in fact to do with limits. And we have an economy that is working in the reverse of limits. Its entire vision is to be breaking down boundaries and moving on, but we live not on a flat earth that's endless, but we live on a round earth that's quite finite. And we seem to be unable to be able to fit the way that that the economy, that a growth economy, in its attitude and its actions in practice are quite in conflict with the limits that we need to be respecting. So that's why a lot of my work has been in on post-capitalist visions and degrowth is one of those post-capitalist visions. And I might add, though, that degrowth started in Europe and I've written this book. The lead author is actually Vincent Ligi, who's French and lives in Budapest. From the European uh, point of view, being very aware of the failures of communism, they see degrowth, they would call it as, in a sense, anti-productivist or beyond productivism as much as as sort of seeing capitalism and what we've seen as another experiment of, of, of communism actually incorporated very similar growth economy sort of ideas within it. It's a new way and it's new waves of looking at things that are integrated into the degrowth movement. I uh, read a 
term in that book that really appealed to me. It was Homo economicus. It's almost, <laughs> you know, that that mindset that uh, we've reached, I suppose, the peak of our evolution being in modern growthist societies. And um, the book refers to decolonizing ourselves to the growthist mindset. And that really was so interesting to me because it's so embedded in people. You know, when people talk about, oh, we can keep growing if only we do it all on renewable energies or use substitution or my favourite, we decouple or my even more favourite, if we innovate, you know, wave our magic wands of innovation and somehow, you know, this this magic technology will just reverse everything even though nothing nothing so far has. So I'm really interested in that term and just wondered if you could impact the, you know, decolonizing uh, aspect of of degrowth. So before I do that, I'll just talk a little bit. At the beginning of the book, we talk about degrowth as a term and, and how it developed because it has been referred to as a missile word. The term degrowth is to a certain extent deliberately provocative. And the impact of that, though, has been counterintuitive on one level in the sense that a lot of people imagine that maybe degrowth is just about austerity and being Puritan about things and reversing growth but having very much the same economy that we have. I like to say that degrowth isn't to growth as more quantity is to less quantity, but rather degrowth is about quality as compared with quantity. We just don't need more as long as we've got enough sufficiency. That's what degrowth is about. But the D in degrowth is just as much about decolonizing our imaginaries, our growth imaginaries, because all of us have brought up, been brought up after generations in a country like Australia of growth being very much part of how our cultures have developed. Our cultures have developed around markets. They've developed around expectations that governments will oversee a growing economy, a robust, healthy economy, that we will export more, that we will be able to import more, all of those kinds of things. These approaches to life are very different and to some extent cause the conflicts between us and Indigenous peoples in Australia because they settled this continent And they lived in a whole variety of diverse kinds of Indigenous groups with their own different languages and their own insertion into their environments with a massive diversity. We need to be very aware of the ways in which our minds are colonised by our own economy and polity, which is a capitalist one, in order for us to understand all the sophisticated subtleties and benefits of really many Indigenous peoples, not just in Australia but in the wider Pacific within which we live and Asia itself. We are really very unaware of all of those levels and possibilities for other ways for us to live. I really like to ask everyone of what a degrowth, a post-growth society looks like to them. Like to you, what would a day-to-day life look for me? What would happen? Um, would I even get out of a bed or would I get out of a bunk or a, um, um, some straw on the floor, I don't know. Uh, what would I eat? How would I work? How would I relate to people? So how I see it is is that we would have a very local economy and I'm more likely to be living in a joint kind of household, a household where there might be somewhere between five and ten people 
I would have a relationship of care and concern. We are likely to have obligations towards our community, which might only be a few hundred people couched within a larger territory of a few thousand people, where we essentially self-provision, and that's collectively self-provision. But I'm looking here at a much wider, broader kind of household of the kind that I lived in at Common Ground uh, and the kind of community where I lived in a household amongst 20 households that were connected at Round the Bend Conservation Cooperative. And I've visited in North America a community of 100 people called Twin Oaks, which was primarily collectively sufficient on a whole series of levels. So the ways that I see my vision of the future is not just plucked out of the air in a very creative kind of way, but it actually develops on some of my life experiences, which makes me feel confident that this kind of community could work. I would expect us to be able, in the same way as David Holmgren has outlined and lots of people who are involved in permaculture or agroecology, to be able to have a landscape around me in which I was able to get fruit and vegetables, all of those kinds of things which enable us us to, to eat. I would also expect children to be very integrated into learning all of those skills as they grew up. But I would see them doing that much more at a level of interacting and being with adults and seeing what they were doing and being carried along the way. If we were to turn our current built society into a more degrowth sort of society, I would expect us to be able to re-inhabit a lot of uh, manufacturing and industry kind of buildings. There would be some areas and spaces that would now be really storage for a whole lot of secondhand things. It's very weird, but I reckon we could probably go for about a generation just reusing things, let alone, you know, like we've got plenty of lead time and that's a really easy strategy for us to be using while we crank up doing things using very modest, just simple technologies, the simplest technologies that we can use to produce the things that we need. And in degrowth, our idea is very much that we have these communal areas that are small and that those people within those communities of hundreds or at the most thousands of people, they actually have their own politics. They self-govern. They decide what they want or that is what they need to produce. And because they are, in effect, producing on demand, you don't even need a market because, Michael, I know that you need something next month and so it comes to you once it's produced. There's no need for even money. If we are have a local economy, we know what the earth around us is capable of generating. We know when we're pushing it too far and we would have to spend, if we were to turn to this kind of society, considerable amount of time regenerating areas. And I think that we would want to... Um, maintain this kind of technology that you and I are using today, but just use it a lot less. But when it comes to thinking about work, I think we'd probably only be working maybe about 20 hours a week. When I was at Common Ground, we worked 28 hours a week. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was plenty. So I think all of this is very possible. And I say that not just from thinking you know, or doing models that are on pages, but from actually living. Well, Anitra, when you're describing that, I felt like I was there and I felt quite 
uh, excited. Um, it's certainly a much more imaginative and nice feeling vision of the future compared to, say, the Plan Melbourne of, uh, <laughs> you, you know, upturning some concrete and punching holes and yoo-hooing, gluing some windows on them and, oh, great, now we've uh, doubled the density and everyone's now living in apartments. So many more cars. You've also given degrowth a very good name. I mean, admittedly, I chose post-growth podcast because I wanted to sound nice. But um, after reading your book um, you, that that you co-authored on on degrowth, it's it's really brought to me what a potentially positive term that degrowth is, and not a word to be scared of. That's good. Look, I've also, in 2018, um, I co-edited a book on housing for degrowth with all kinds of chapters on different examples and Twin Oaks is in that, but it's just got all sorts of different examples by lots of different people, dozens of people contributed to that book. And I've just delivered to Rutledge another co-edited collection on food for degrowth. People from all over the world contributed, including Patrick Jones, who lives in Hepburn and uh, is very involved in permaculture, but also a degrowth kind of economy and the degrowth movement. So I think what's interesting about all of this is, is that there's a massive underground, fairly invisible, termite-like movement of people doing very exciting things. That's really great. And um, it's something that I think people need to be aware of and be encouraged by, even though the mainstream mantra and indeed the mainstream environmental movement is very dispiriting that underneath that there's uh, there's an undergrowth of people who don't need the advertising and 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 don't need to be centralized and don't need to be on the news to doing the changes that that we all need. Anitra, I'm going to ask you. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be a controversial question, but um, this podcast is partially backed by Sustainable Population Australia. So for all guests, we do need to ask the inevitable question. From your perspective, is it possible to have a degrowth of society with a growing population and why or why not? Oh, well, I don't think it is. I'll answer the question personally and then I'll talk a little bit about how people um, more generally in the movement talk about this question. So I haven't had children and I really didn't think it was necessary to think seriously about having children until I was sort of in my 30s. I've had two long-term partners, not both of whom had decided not to have children. There was one person with whom I um, might have um, had one child, but I don't think that I would ever have had more than one child and that was a decision that was made to do with the context within which we live, which I believe is overpopulation. Uh, and, I, and I think it's quite interesting because uh, I can testify that um, I have been under massive pressure, you know, personally, by people who say, but why haven't you had children and da, 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 da. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because it's one of the things that always makes me understand why that decolonizing our imaginaries is so important. The extent to which we exert pressure and expectations on other people just cannot be underestimated. So all of my uh, environmental studies um, have led me to believe that we actually have, we have too many people on the planet already. And I can understand why people say, yes, but that, you know, like there are people who aren't getting, uh, aren't getting enough. Um, and if all of those people who are over-consuming consumed less, we'd be able to support them. But none of the studies that I read 
lead me to believe that that's really quite the case. I mean, we still need all of our basic needs met. And, uh, and so I think that we should be looking at degrowing the population. However, the degrowth movement as a whole, it marginalises this issue of population. And it's a very, very tricky one for numerous uh, political reasons. The main political reason being that with the extent of um, migrants and refugees and prejudicial um, attitudes towards them, as well as uh, what's seen as a kind of like um, right-wing chauvinism, uh, means that people who say that we should cut down on the population or have population control often face, they often get drawn into a whole lot of things that have nothing to do with uh, population at all. And, I mean, it very much reminds me as a women's liberationist um, who's been, and, and I hesitate to say pro-abortion because all I have ever argued is, is that abortion is available to people but you would immediately get drawn into, oh, yes, so you love killing babies and all of that kind of thing. There's another really, um, uh, again, controversial way of framing this, um, but I still think it's worth putting it out there. And the point is we've always uh, had a kind of conceit that we're different from other animals, you know, that we make decisions about things, we make conscious decisions about things, we have a kind of collective governance, this, that and the other, we're aware in a way that other animals aren't. Number one, I think a lot of that is ridiculous and I think probably we have a lot more in common with ordinary animals and, in fact, if you consider population and our views to population, I don't think that we're any different from mice or rabbits or any other animals that just kind of like populate until there is some counteracting, countervailing force. But I think what's really amazing is, is that in Australia we've got kangaroos and when the environment is incapable of supporting new mouths, female kangaroos can hold the egg in utero, more or less. Young joeys aren't produced. And, you know, like maybe, maybe this could be one of the new technical things we do. <laughs> we all become mini kangaroos. I would love to be a mini kangaroo. <laughs> I'd love to be able to leap like a kangaroo. Exactly. It would make a, a big change from uh, walking. Yeah, there's a, a certain grace to the, the hopping. I just, uh, when I see them in, in their family units and how bonded they are with each other almost uh, seamlessly. I could be romanticising it, but, yeah, they tend <laughs> they seem to do small groups better than I do. Um, thank you so much for that very um, thoughtful answer, Anitra, and we are coming to the end, but I just would like you to share if there's anything that you want to discuss about exploring degrowth and when the launch is and how you're doing the launch and um, in this COVID age. And can I say, uh, from what I've read, I really love it. I, I think it's um, almost like an encyclopedia and a Bible. I'm not going to say Bible, encyclopedia of the movement of the past, present and where it could be going. I think what our book does that other books in the degrowth literature haven't done is to really focus on the movement and what what people within the movement are doing, what are the challenges that they really face and what is their idea of a degrowth agenda, exactly what you've been talking about. What would a degrowth society really look like and how could we get there? And I think all of those questions uh, and topics are really are really interesting. We're recording this on the 19th of August and within the next 24 hours, our book 
is being launched in London, or that is, it's being published. It'll come hot off the press. So by the time this uh, recording goes to air, it will be available in London, but with some delay in Australia, only because Tullamarine is closed down and uh, we've got real problems with freight. The um, the book is published by Pluto Press in London, and they're represented by Booktopia in uh, in Australia. People can still go onto uh, the Pluto Press site and do an order, um, uh, and they could get an ebook straight away. From a degrowth point of view, ebooks are pretty good because uh, they usually cut down in materials. Not always. Not if you print it off. But you know, uh, that's that that could be one way to go, and uh, I would expect that there will be uh, copies in bookshops such as Readings, uh, more likely uh, towards the end of September. We're really uncertain, and that's it's all completely out of con- our control. Like a lot of things in this pandemic, it's really put a pause on things, and we're not sure. But, uh, yeah, I hope that people read the book and I've got a website so people can engage with me and uh, I'd be really interested in hearing more views on degrowth and we've got various Zoom events happening as well. So there are numbers of people in Australia who uh, have contributed a lot to degrowth, Uh, people like Samuel Alexander, um, Ted Trainer, yeah, David Holmgren too has you know talked on the topic. So numbers of people. Uh, so it's it really is an interesting topic, and one of the main aims of the book was really just to elaborate on it to for so people could actually understand all the depth um, and range of uh, views of different degrowthers and their actions. Right, fantastic. And we'll definitely put links on the podcast in the description of where people can go to find out more about the book and more about yourself too. So, look, thank you so much, Anitra. It's been, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you at that Brunswick House party uh, two years ago, and it continues to be an utter pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. It's a wonderful, wonderful podcast that you run. Welcome back to the Post-Growth Australia podcast. Now, I personally felt very inspired and energised in my chat with Anitra Nelson, particularly her vision of a day-to-day life in a degrowth world was incredibly detailed and thought out. I could really picture the kind of world she was evoking and even imagine myself living there. In part, my work and activism in town planning and alternative communities have pretty much been inseparable from my work in post-growth, so I really resonate with Anitra's ideas and experiences. I wanted, therefore, to take a few opportunities to muse on this idea just a little more. Firstly, I'm in furious agreement with Anitra with the views that cities are inherently unsustainable. Although I still live in Melbourne, which is perhaps a bit hypocritical uh, with this view, every time I look around, I see bitumen and concrete, cars and roads. I, I just find myself cringing, to be honest. This is all made from stuff that was once in the ground that should have stayed there, built on top of ecosystems that never agreed to be concreted over. This is an unsustainable illusion that I feel myself living in that just cannot persist. The false dichotomy of suburban sprawl versus high-rise is just a false choice of more of the same, digging up more of the earth's crust to topple over existing buildings and infrastructure. And so it goes on. I admire Nitra for pursuing her dreams and working towards a co-living collective in regional Victoria, Not all of us are yet in a position to move regionally for many reasons, which is why I have been so drawn towards David Holmgren's retro-suburbia model. 
if I can give a real basic gist of this movement, is that instead of pulling down established houses with private gardens for apartments and units, the houses themselves are instead repurposed to allow more people to live and share within them with a the green space converted to growing food. Indeed, for the past four years, I've myself been living in a rental house that has been attempting to put into practice some of these principles. I have been very proud of what this house has achieved, but it has also taught me some very valuable life lessons, in particularly uh, that shared living has to come with it, from my opinion, at least with a bit of a warning label. The idea of shared living as well as permaculture gardening, has become very trendy and on paper very inviting. However, and I do stress however, one needs to realise that community living requires unlearning and relearning a whole new set of relational and interpersonal skills that, and I can only speak for myself here, can be really bloody difficult. If I can get all pseudo-psychological on you here just for a second, um, bear with me. I believe we have been raised as disconnected hyper-individuals mashed together in vast cities where the decision-making is either centralised or privatised. So many of us haven't really grown up with the skills to make horizontal dynamic interrelationships with people really that possible, particularly if those people aren't family. As such, what can often seem like paradise at the start can quickly turn into like trauma soup, <laughs> or at least the difficulties of getting along with each other in a shared living situation. It can all just get too much. As such, although retrosuburbia may say, tear down the fences, I've found myself increasingly, well, <laughs> on the fence with this issue came up with that joke myself. I think communal living is great, but I don't think it is for everyone. I believe we need to come together to explore many different options that work for many different people, e.g. people may wish to live in smaller accommodation but have walkable access to community gardens and pristine bushland, etc. Therefore, as we explore alternatives to our own personal living arrangements to find the best model that fits us, we also need to think broader scale and change this whole town planning system. Thankfully, there are movements already out there that bring this large-scale thinking and post-growth mindset into the town planning system. Town Planning Rebellion is one such project that has been building momentum this year. I'll attach a link to this movement in the link so you can find out more about them. However, I'll stop here with my musings. It is true that one can have too much of a good thing, even when it comes to my dulcet tones. So with on that note, until next time, until next time.